This is episode 33 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. I don't have anything interesting to say here other than what the hell springtime. There's an adage in the Pacific Northwest. April showers bring May showers. This month, we've had sunshine, overcast, rain, sideways rain, thunder, hailstorms, and more sunshine. And it's only the fourth of the month. The sky looks smoky from all the pollen in the air. Fir trees and alder, hemlock, and cedar. Western false cedar, technically, for any arborists in the audience, but it's a highly fragrant tree nonetheless. Every time it rains, my white car turns yellowish-brown, and of course, all of that pollen is making my allergies act up something fierce. Imagine having low-grade flu symptoms, runny nose, congestion, sore throat, swollen lymph nodes, and occasional sinus migraines for two months straight. I guess if you've got allergies, you don't need to imagine. Or, I suppose if I want to be trendy, I could chalk it all up to something called long covid a convenient scapegoat for any long-term symptoms that anybody wishes to claim, no matter if the underlying cause is viral, environmental, or the inevitable bronchial result of staying indoors for two years wearing a bacteria rag over your breathing holes. But no, not me. This is pollen. I've had it for years. Long before a Chinese virology lab started messing with the common cold, it's part and parcel of living in such a green, lush part of the world. And it makes me really grumpy. From the I told you so department, Russian theaters are having a tough go of it. Over the last few weeks, Paramount, Sony, Disney, Warner Brothers, Netflix, Spotify, and many other entertainment companies have all decided to cut off the people of Russia from new releases of Western movies. This represents an existential threat to the film industry in Russia, according to Russia's Association of Cinema Owners, who say that Russian film studios just don't put out enough content to cover the demand and that they are facing the possibility of having to liquidate the entire industry. But human beings are nothing if not adaptable. Intellectual property proponents like to operate under the assumption that if you stop selling something, then people will stop buying it. After all, you have the copyright, which is a state-granted monopoly on a particular creative work that makes it illegal for someone to get it any other way. But that doesn't erase the demand for the work, it just drives people to get it through other means. Usually, that means piracy. Put another way, if you make it impossible to get something legally, you make it inevitable that people will get it illegally. So it is with Russian cinema owners who, according to Torrent Freak, are showing pirated versions of first-run movies like The Batman from Warner Brothers, Don't Look Up from Netflix, and I'm Blushing from Pixar, which I guess is only available on Disney+. Plus. Although, to be honest, I'm not sure I've heard of any of these. But the Association of Cinema Owners has condemned the practice of, of getting the movies through piracy, but many people and groups in Russia are encouraging it as a way to keep the theater going and to strike back at those evil Western corporations. To be clear, piracy is still technically illegal in Russia, but it is yet to be seen whether Russian law enforcement and Russian courts will even bother to prosecute. For the last 30 years, the world has been running headlong into globalism. For better or worse, humans all over the earth have been blending our cultures via the internet, social media, shared cinema, and open trade. 
Personally, I think this is mostly a good thing. And before you start knee-jerk hating on me for saying such a thing, note that I make a strong distinction between globalism, the global sharing and blending of culture, and global governance, which is a single state entity with coercive power over the entire world. The former promotes cooperation by giving us more in common with each other. It promotes peace by allowing us to exchange resources through free trade rather than having to go to war over them. The latter is inescapable slavery to a small group of oligarchs. No one should have that much power over everybody. Anyway, I guess my point is that when I was a kid, we were all taught to be afraid of the big bad Russians because they had nukes pointed at America and a madman on the, with the button. We grew up with propaganda and fear and the very real belief that we'd all be killed in World War III before we even reached puberty. We had no real understanding that they felt the same over there because there was no communication, no intersection between the cultures. With the rise of the internet and the onset of globalism, I started to have hope that that horrible fate would be averted. We'd be able to talk to each other to resolve differences and realize that people are just people everywhere. The possibility of war diminished the more our cultures became intertwined and codependent. And now, nearly every leftard government and virtue signaling corporation have jumped onto this sanctions bandwagon that is rapidly undoing the benefits of decades of mutual cooperation and free trade. You are not going to convince Putin to stop what he's doing by shutting off Netflix. He's probably never even seen cuties. The way to stop Putin is for his own people to get sick of his crap and remove him from office. But by driving a cultural wedge right through the heart of all this cooperation, it's teaching Russians to hate Americans and Europeans, to think of them as the awful oppressors who bring misery, to stop, among other things, shuttling Western astronauts to and from the International Space Station. Oh yeah, that happened this week too. And it's causing them to support Putin even more because he's the one offering to deliver them from all the evils of the West. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. That one got political and kind of got away from me. This is supposed to be a tech news show. So yeah, theaters in Russia are turning to piracy because Western governments and companies are monumentally stupid. I mean, you want World War III? This is how you get World War III. From the free money is expensive department, the Google store last week received a page redesign with a particularly nasty bug in its account menu. When you tap your profile avatar in the top right corner of the screen, the menu shows your account status, including whether or not you have a store credit. The bug is that if you have any credit at all, even a few cents, the menu will show that you have $500 in store credit to spend. People excited to see such a bounty might be tempted to go on a shopping spree in the Google store, perhaps buying a new Pixel or Nest. Only on the last confirmation page of the purchase process does the app tell you what the real account credit is when applying it to the purchase and happily charging the difference to the credit card of an inattentive user who might have breathed through this last page without checking the numbers. It is the recommendation of this podcast, as always, to stop giving your money entirely to the giant mega corporation who has repeatedly demonstrated through their actions that they hate you. But since most of you will ignore that advice, I'll simply recommend that you always check the numbers before confirming any online purchase. From the Abusive Relationship Department, Apple has found yet another way to antagonize its developer community. Last week, developers started receiving emails from the company warning that it will remove apps from the App Store that haven't been updated in, quote, a significant amount of time. The mail gives developers 30 days to submit an app update or their app would be deleted and no longer available to users. 
A press release on Apple's site clarifies any app not updated within the last three years and which does not meet a certain threshold of downloads in the last 12 months is up for deletion. Now, I don't know about you, but I use programs that are way more than three years old, sometimes more than a decade. Sometimes a program just doesn't need updates. It's well-written, small in scope, does what it's needed, and generally free of bugs. Or maybe sometimes the developer just disappeared or lost interest. I've got a number of games like that. And certain niche programs might be absolutely critical to the workflow of a very small number of people. Think specialty apps for a certain field of study or local apps of use only in a small region. None of that matters, of course, to Apple. They have decided to only host apps of broad appeal to the lowest common denominator, apps that are getting constant updates whether needed or not. And, of course, given Apple's ongoing battle against sideloading, what they really mean is that you, the iPhone user, should not be allowed to run any stable app with a small target audience. Perhaps the company ran out of rows in the Excel sheet that they use to track apps, or perhaps their hard drives are getting full. I don't know why they've suddenly decided they don't like the long tail, but perhaps they just don't care about the long tail of the market. As long as they can keep getting their 30% out of the TikToks and the Snapchats of the world, they make money hand over fist. Apple knows that they can act with impunity here. The type of person who buys an Apple device doesn't usually care about user choice as long as they get their social media Skinner box studded with a fake gemstone case. And iOS developers themselves affected by a form of Stockholm syndrome will bend over and take it. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Developers tell themselves that's where the users are. Users say they've got all the apps. Both of these attitudes perpetuate a vicious cycle of profits for a company that sees them both as nothing more than wallets to be squeezed. A good racket for as long as you can keep it up? Me? I'll stick to platforms I can sideload apps onto. From the numbers, numbers, numbers department. The latest browser share data from StatCounter has come out with an interesting surprise. Google Chrome accounts for two-thirds of the browsers on the internet today. No, that's not the surprise. The surprise is that number two is now Microsoft Edge, with just over 10% of the market share, and has edged out Safari at 9.6 and Firefox just under 8%. The link to the full report is in the show notes if you want to read it. This data is of extreme interest to marketers and advertisers who pilot million-dollar advertising budgets for their clients based on the swing of a few percentage points either way. Fortunately, as a podcast on the value-for-value value model, Angry Tech News doesn't play advertising and we don't have to care about what interests marketers. And you, as an internet user, don't have to care either. Seriously, just use whichever browser you're comfortable with. You will get no judgment here. From the Amping Down department, Google Amp is a fairly controversial technology amongst web developers. Proponents say that it makes the web faster. Opponents say it breaks web standards and gives more control of the web to Google. They're both right. At the highest level, Google Amp causes a web page to be partially pre-rendered and served from Google's content delivery network rather than from the server that hosts the site. Google has poured billions into setting up fast CDN nodes all over the planet, so the download is faster, and the partial rendering really helps speed up a CSS and image-heavy page, especially if you're using a laggy memory hog like, well, like the one that has a two-thirds browser share. But by loading from Google servers, you're also providing free analytics and data to Google, 
And don't think for a moment they don't have an AI pouring over that data to pull marketing data. Online advertisers and marketing firms have particular reason to be wary of that, considering Google already owns nine-tenths of the online ad market. My personal beef with AMP, aside from the privacy ickiness of connecting to Google's servers, is the web standards thing, though. Specifically, rendering the page on Google's servers can remove elements that I want my ad blocker to filter out entirely. Ads can be baked into the page footer or right into the page text instead, wrapped in a dynamic tag that can't be filtered. Trackback links to services that I'd like to block might be removed in lieu of an automatic ping that I have no control over. AMP takes control away from the user. Anyway, I'm not alone in thinking that, all things being equal, I'd rather have a page without Google AMP. Brave Browser, starting in their 1.40 release, is going to add a feature to their built-in ad blocker and debouncer, which, when it detects an AMP page, automatically fetches the page from the original site by passing Google servers. And DuckDuckGo is introducing a similar feature into its iOS, Android, and Mac apps, as well as into its Chrome and Firefox extensions to fetch the original publisher page instead of an AMP version. Both of these features should be available soon in their respective software, As an added bonus, if you're worried about that lost speed from not getting the AMP page, you know what speeds up a page about three times faster than anything AMP can? Blocking ads. Blocking ads, pre-rolls, videos, and dynamic scripts that constitute the bulk of a slow page these days. Brave already comes with an ad blocker pre-installed and automatically enabled, and the DuckDuckGo browser supports extensions, so you can add one there too if you like. Of course, Google doesn't want the ads filtered out. That's denying the company its money. To me. That's just icing on the cake. And finally, from the Ponzi scheme as a service department, it wouldn't be an angry tech news without a story about non-fungible tokens. Yuga Labs is a relatively new Silicon Valley startup who have made an impressive amount of money, on paper at least, by selling NFTs. Their biggest accomplishment to date is an NFT collection known as the Bored Ape Yacht Club, an AI-generated collection of images of cartoon apes. Anyone who buys one of the NFTs is given an invite to an exclusive online forum, as well as the copyright to the image. Although being AI-generated, it's not clear if the images are even copyrighted at all. See Angry Tech News number 30. For whatever reason, the Bored Ape NFTs went viral, Several celebrities bought up Bored Apes, driving the price up. As of mid-March, more than a billion dollars worth of Ethereum have been spent on this collection, and a newly minted ape goes for upwards of 300000 Last month, Yuga Labs, flush with cash, announced that they were going to create their own metaverse. See, the problem with everyone else's metaverse, as they saw it, is that people don't have a real stake in it. They haven't invested their real hard-earned cash in a plot of virtual land, and thus, they have no incentive to develop community with their virtual neighbors. Well, this is a deficiency that Yuga is only all too willing to resolve, by being the ones to sell you that plot of virtual land. To facilitate this, they minted ApeCoin, an NFT-based cryptocurrency, to function as the in-metaverse currency, thus turning non-fungible tokens into a fungible currency. You know what, it's best if we don't think about that one too much. And so, with much hype and fanfare, Yuga this week opened the sale of plots in their virtual metaverse called Other Side in a much-advertised ICO. The initial auction of 55,000 plots sold out within a few hours, netting Yuga 300 million and change. It also broke Ethereum. For a few hours, anyway. See, 
While the plots were technically sold using ApeCoins as a currency, all NFT transactions still rely on the Ethereum blockchain, and NFT transactions pay Ethereum gas fees. One of the main ways that blockchains like ETH deal with traffic floods is by adjusting its transaction fees or gas fees. The more traffic there is trying to get into the current block, the higher the fees go up. Transactions can set a fee limit saying that if the fees are above this amount, then a border delay the transaction so it can go into a later less congested block. When the traffic on the Ethereum blockchain suddenly spiked, the gas fees spiked too, sometimes as much as 3 to 5 ETH, equivalent to several thousand dollars. Because the plots were being sold at auction, buyers didn't really have the option to delay their transaction if they wanted the plot, so despite being charged Ethereum gas fees as much as two times the value of the ApeCoin they were purchasing, the buyers pushed through. Eventually, this flood overloaded the Ethereum blockchain, causing transactions to simply fail. Note that failed ETH transactions still charge gas, usually around $30 worth, but at the inflated fees, some people paid thousands for failed transactions. When all this is said and done, Yuga made out like bandits making millions of dollars on some hype and a few lines in a database. Many of the plot buyers flipped their newly minted NFTs on a secondary market like OpenSea for sometimes 10 times the price they paid, staying firmly in the black despite high gas fees. People who bought to hold paid far more than expected, but honestly, can you put a price on a prime piece of virtual online real estate? The only people who really got screwed on this deal was everybody else who wanted to use the Ethereum blockchain that day. But no major news outlet seemed to care to write an article about those people, so screw them, am I right? Oh, and while I'm on the topic, I ran across this other gem about Bored Ape that popped up last week. It seems that hackers somehow got into the official Bored Ape Instagram account. Using that account, the hackers announced that new apes were being minted and to enter your wallet credentials into this link in order to buy one. Of course, as expected, the URL given instead drained the wallets dry. Later analysis of the blockchain found that approximately 44 people fell for the scam and 133 ape NFTs were stolen. As of last Monday, 23 of those NFTs had already been flipped on the secondary market, netting the hackers about $2.4 million. Much grass to Brian Janak and Christopher Reamer, who produced today's episode of Angry Tech News. As well, for generous boosts from Dame Bully Steed and Sir Sean of the Allegheny Valley, who boosted the show despite already being a monthly PayPal producer. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and look for the donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it be $3, $33, or $300. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose, at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.